Um, lately, there's been a lot of puzzling, puzzling things going on in the world. Just confusing things, things contradictory things, things that are just totally make no sense. And uh, for all the stuff that doesn't make any sense or the things that puzzle me, there was one event many, many years ago uh, that, that puzzled me tremendously. That just really, really, I was like, what? That makes no sense. Um, now, I don't remember the exact number. Um, my wife can probably remember it better, but it was her cousin was getting married and the Roman Catholic Church she wanted to get married at required a pre-marriage course. Now that's pretty standard, right? I mean, most churches require a pre-marriage course before they marry you. That's fine. That's not what puzzled me. But what puzzled me was the price tag on it. Do you remember what it was? It was a lot. It was. I, I remember it was at least $1,000. So... You want to get married at this church, you got to pay the priest at least $1,000. I think it was more than $1,000. But now that was puzzling in itself. I'm like, how do you charge for that, right? That's, that seems a little bit insane to me. But what puzzled me even more was the fact that you're going to pay somebody $1,000 to get counseled on marriage who never was married and who can never be married. Now look, I'm not saying single people can't give good marriage advice, that's not what I'm suggesting. Unless of course, you're the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? He was single and he gave the best marriage advice. So I'm not hating on the single people, I'm not saying you can't give good marriage advice. I'm just saying that I would prefer somebody with a little bit of experience. Especially for a thousand dollars, right? An unmarried person might be able to give you tremendous advice, that's fine, but they can't really sympathize with you the same way that somebody who has been or is married can, you know, because they experientially understand what it is to be married for an extended period of time. They, they know. And likewise, with the Lord Jesus Christ, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is not this God who's in the heavens who doesn't get it. He understands every single weakness that you have. He can sympathize with you because he was a real human being. Jesus, the God-man, well, God became a man and became the God-man, and he lived as a human being. He was tempted just like you are. In every single way that you're tempted, he was tempted. Yet, the Bible says, he is without sin. And therefore, he understands experientially. He gets it. He knows if you're going through temptation, if you're going through struggle, if you're going through suffering, Jesus actually understands. He's not like your, you know, your friend who you go to and says, you know, I understand. No, you don't. Maybe they do, but probably they don't. You cannot look at Jesus and say, you don't get it. He does because he experienced it. He went through it. He gets it. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because he experienced it and overcame it. He knows what temptation is all about and he overcame it perfectly. So therefore, we're, we're told to draw near to his throne of grace. Jesus is our high priest king who gives us mercy and grace in our time of need. So let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 and work this thing through, this high priest king concepts. 
fighting bees and all sorts of stuff here. Okay, verse 14, Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus in the Bible carries many, many titles. He's called the King of Kings. He's called the Lord of Lords, the Lamb of God, the Light of the World, the Son of God, the Bread of Life, and many, many, many other ways the Bible describes him. And all these different descriptions, I like to understand them as a diamond. When you look at a diamond from different angles, it shines through all these different arrays of colors and different uh, glories. And, and when taken together, it paints a full picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is like a diamond. You look at him from here, from there, and it all shines forth the glory of God. And together, did it just die? Can you still hear it? Yeah, okay. I thought, I thought it died. Sorry. But as you look at the Lord from these different angles, it paints a full picture of who he is in his majesty and glory. So throughout the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit puts a very he heavy emphasis on this concept of Jesus as our great high priest. Jesus, our great high priest, it says, has passed through the heavens. What in the, what in the heavens does that mean, that he passed through the heavens? It's not every day you hear people talk about somebody who is passing through the heavens. Did Jesus get on an airplane? Did he get on a SpaceX rocket and go up into the heavens? No, this is in reference to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, truly, bodily. It wasn't a spiritual thing. He physically got up and walked out of the tomb for real, and then he actually ascended in the heaven. Our high priest is seated on his throne in heaven at the right hand of God. Now, in the last few weeks, we learned about the supremacy of Christ, how the Lord Jesus rules over all of the known existence, both physical and spiritual. He rules it all. And now we're being reminded again, Jesus is on his throne. He's passed through the heavens. But like that diamond, we're now viewing Christ from another angle as our high priest. Now, I didn't grow up particularly religious. Some of you may well know my story. My family was officially Romanian Orthodox. Any Romanians in the house? Nothing. Just me. Now, looking back on that now, I find that quite strange that a so-called Christian denomination would identify itself with a nationality. Uh, there was a certain pride that we took in being R Romanian Orthodox. It, it was as if our Romanianness somehow sanctified the Orthodoxy. There was a certain atmosphere of ethnic pride in that church. And I remember as a child, I was really intimidated by the priest. I mean, this guy was like, he, he, he scared me kind of. Now, to be fair, he was a very gentle and a nice man, and I did have interactions with him, and he was very nice. He wasn't, uh, you know, uh, harsh or, or abrasive or anything. He was actually quite nice, but as a kid, I was scared still. Uh, I, I, got, I got the feeling, you know, 
that this was the priest, right? My, my grandma spoke of him like he had all the answers. You know, I would hear her talking to my mother or whoever. And the priest said this or that, so therefore we do this or that. It's like her argument was always, well, the priest said it. So as a kid, I go, well, the priest must know what he's talking about. Because that's like the authority around here is the priest. He, he was treated as if he was like almost perfect. The wisest man on the planet. He, and, and, and he seemed way above me on another level, out of my reach. Like, how could I, a lowly, dumb, little Romanian boy with an awkward hairline, come anywhere close to the priest? He was dressed in this, I remember the robe. It was like gold robe, and he had these golden religious... Uh, uh, vestments or whatever and he would go around and he would swing this thing around and it would spew out smoke and it, everything was made of gold and I was broke so this this is the man right he's got the gold he's got the wisdom and I got nothing so I gotta listen to him and he scared me my idea of a priest was someone holy now my idea of holiness was, was wrong too but it was this idea of somebody holy above me uh, and, and that us little unholy worms, we can't really approach. And we were just blessed to have him come to our, our lowly dwellings and sprinkle some water on our walls so that we wouldn't die from the boogeyman under our beds. Now, you may think I'm exaggerating, but that's how a little boy like me saw this man. I'm not the only one who felt like this. I know others who've had similar experiences going through, uh, um, you know, experiences with priests and different, uh, you know, like Catholicism and Orthodoxy and stuff. But when we read about Jesus in Hebrews 1 and 2 and 3 and parts of chapter 4, we get this picture that Jesus is high above us, right? He's glorious. He's supreme overall. But then, like, chapter 4, there's a switch. There's like, uh, you know, we look at the diamond and the shifts of it, and we see something different here. We, we see him as our high priest, and we're introduced to a God who sympathizes with us. We're introduced to, to the Lord Jesus who now comes down to us and sympathizes with us. It says, I get it. I love you. I understand your temptations, your weaknesses. I sympathize with them. This is a concept of a priest that I couldn't comprehend as a child. But it's the Lord Jesus. It's God. Our high priest can, our high priest can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted like we are tempted. Jesus is not like the perception I had of the Romanian Orthodox priest. He's infinitely greater than the priest, yet he's sympathetic and understanding of my temptations. Although I'm still a lowly worm before the Lord, the Lord comes to me and he understands. He sympathizes. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He lived this life uh, he lived a full life as a human man. He faced all the same t temptations that are common to humans. And the only difference between Jesus and us, well, there's a lot of differences, but one of the big ones in this context is he was without sin. He never succumbed to the temptations. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, they fell, they failed, they were deceived, they were tricked, and they sinned. But when Jesus came, God veiled in flesh a true 100% human man, just like our father Adam. And when Satan came to him to tempt him, in a similar fashion, Jesus, the second Adam, stood firm. He didn't fall. He didn't fail. The devil lied to Jesus 
just like he lied to Adam. He sprinkled a little truth in there. He quoted a little scripture, but he did it out of context, just like every false uh, preacher out there. And, and Jesus had to rebuke him and actually teach the devil what the scripture actually says. So, so, so when the devil tempted Jesus, he, he overcame where Adam failed. He rebuked the devil and the devil fled from him in defeat. Now Jesus, the majestic one, the glorious one who's passed through the heavens, the one who's supreme over all, he can look at us now and he says, I sympathize with you. I know what it's like to be tempted. Our high priest is not a distant religious authority that we can't approach, but one who loves and sympathizes with every weakness we have. Therefore, and this is just this is just some of the most comforting truth we have. Therefore, we're told as a result of his high priestly sympathy to us, we're told that we can now draw near with confidence to his throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need. Now, notice something, something, something so important as we go forward in this passage. Our high priest, we're told, sits on the throne. But understand something. Priests in the Old Testament didn't have thrones. Kings had thrones. But our high priest sits on the throne, and his throne is called the throne of grace. So now we're privileged to see another angle of the diamond as the diamond shifts. We now see that he's not just our high priest, but he's a king too. He's a high priest king. He's a priest king. And this high priest king loves us and is, and is actually encouraging us to, he's commanding us to confidently approach his throne to receive mercy and grace. Typically in ancient times, no one could approach the king's throne with confidence. It was seen as disrespectful and would probably get you killed. And we read in, uh, in Esther how she took her life in her hands by simply entering the throne room without being summoned. But here we have the high priestly king of heaven, the king of kings, who says, Come confidently. Come confidently to my throne and I will give you grace and mercy when you need it. You don't have to be afraid to come to his throne. He says come with confidence because he is our savior who sympathizes with us. And we can only approach with confidence because he is our priest. He dealt with our sin as a priest and he welcomes us into his kingdom as a king. Jesus is our high priestly king who really sympathizes with us. Sometimes we can beat ourselves up because of how wretched we are. But we have to get to a place where we can confidently approach his throne and receive what he gives. Grace and mercy. If you need grace and mercy, that means you are wretched, you are a sinner. But Jesus says, come confidently to my throne and I will give you what you need. A high priest functioned in a very important intercessory role in the Old Testament. He would approach God's throne, not boldly, not then, but with fear and trembling to offer a sacrifice for his own sin and the sin of the people. 
So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 gets into this concept a little bit. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So the theme of Old Testament priests is repeated a lot in the book of Hebrews. And as we go through the book, we'll, we'll come back to this concept. So it's important for us right now to have a good grasp of what a priest is, so that as we go through, I don't have to constantly explain this concept. The high priest was the highest office in all the priesthood in Israel. The high priest was chosen from among the sons of Aaron. Now Aaron was the first high priest. Aaron was the brother of Moses. The sons of Aaron, therefore, were to make up the remainder of the priesthood, which we call the Levitical priesthood. Their duty was to preside over the worship of the Lord. They would offer sacrifices and offerings and all kinds of stuff. But the high priest was tasked with this very heavy responsibility of offering the blood of the sacrifice inside the Holy of Holies before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. What is a Holy of Holies? What is an Ark of the Covenant? What is all this stuff? Okay, let me illustrate with a story. Now remember, Aaron, Moses' brother, was the first high priest in Israel, okay? Follow me. He had some sons. Two of his sons, Nadab and Abihu, got themselves into a very hot situation. <laughs> well, I'm not going to get into all the details, but the book of Leviticus lays out all the different duties of the priests and exactly how God wants those duties to be carried out. Now, the job of the high priest and the priesthood was to be an intermediary between God and the people. So God... God chose Aaron and his sons to be the intermediaries between God and the people because they're sinners and God is holy. God appointed an intermediary so that he didn't consume and kill everyone because of how wretched they are. Okay, so Nadab and Abihu um, were told uh, that it's... Oh, okay, hold on, where, where am I here? Um... Okay, so Nadab and Abihu decided to offer what the Bible calls unauthorized, or other translations say, strange fire before the Lord. So Exodus 30 and verse 9 tells the priest to not offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. And it was Aaron's job to offer the incense and to make atonement for the people with the blood of the sacrifice. So Nadab and Abihu took it upon themselves to do the job reserved for the high priest. And they thought, well, it's not that big a deal, right? We're, we're, we're worshiping the Lord. What could be wrong about offering a sacrifice to the Lord? They thought it was a little thing. Obviously... they assume the Lord would just receive it. Maybe they thought, you know, we're taking initiative. God would say, good job. Well, here's what happened. Immediately after they breached their position, Leviticus 10 and verse 2 says this, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. God literally killed them immediately. He didn't wait. He didn't say, well, 
I can I understand how you might see that maybe I would be happy with this and so just don't do it again he just boom fire came out killed them consumed them they were never seen again the high priest was the only one chosen by God to enter the Holy of Holies, which was this room in the temple where God dwelt, where the Ark of the Covenant was, which was this box that held the Ten Commandments. And on that day, the high priest entered, and only on that day. And if you breach the Lord's commands, if he tells you, you enter the Holy of Holies on this day, you must be this person appointed in this office, that's when you do it. Because if not, you end up like Nadab and Abihu, dead. And so the high priest can deal gently with the wayward and the ignorant people because he recognizes that he is beset with sin himself. The, high, the, 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 the office of high priest was not this, um, you know, glorious sort of, oh wow, you're the high priest. It was a, an office of fear and trembling. It was an office of, of understanding how sinful he is and how sinful the people are it was an office where if you made a wrong step god would kill you and so the high priest understands what it means to have a holy god and be a sinful man he gets it he can deal with the wayward he can deal with the ignorant because he recognizes how beset with weakness he is he wasn't a religious a distant religious man but a man who knew well his own weakness presiding over the temple sacrifices reminded every day of his own sin and the sins of the people his, his own people now imagine presiding over the temple duty all day surrounded by blood and animal dead animals and the smoke of the sacrifice all day being reminded this is a job that nobody themselves takes nobody applies for the high priesthood it says oh i'd love to be the high priest here's my resume this is a job to where you must be called by God directly. And God gave the, the, the order, a son of Aaron from, the, from the, the, the tribe of Levi. It was a heavy responsibility. It, it was a very serious and humbling duty to step into the gap between God and his people, knowing you yourself are a sinful human being. The high priest knew well the devastating effects of sin, and he was well acquainted with the holiness of God, who could not tolerate sin in his midst. He knew it well. And so the high priest would draw near once a year into the holy place, the throne of God, and he would offer the blood of the sacrifice for himself and for the nation. But he drew near to that throne with fear and with trembling. The veil that separated the temple from the holy of holies was a fearful and dreadful veil to pass by. You don't just peek in. It's not how it works. But Christ now is our high priest. He becomes the source of our eternal salvation. Therefore, he says, you can confidently draw near to my throne now. And you can confidently find help. You don't have to fear the veil. When Jesus died, the veil was torn. It was open wide for all to come in and to receive mercy. Let's go to verse 5 now of Hebrews chapter 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who will obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Christ, we're told, did not seek to exalt himself into the position of a high priest. God his Father appointed him at his baptism when from heaven he said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now that is all well and good, but then the Holy Spirit inspires the author of Hebrews to quote from Psalm 110 and verse 4. And Psalm 110 and verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn, Yahweh has sworn, and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm, which basically means Psalm 110 describes, prophesies the coming of the Savior, who we know is Jesus, the Messiah. Now some will say, no, no, no. Psalm 110 is about King David. Well, verse 1 of Psalm 110 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David is saying, Yahweh says to my Lord, now I ask, who is David's Lord? Is David his own Lord? No. The Messiah is David's Lord. David is giving us a prophetic insight. Yahweh is speaking to David's Lord. David's Lord is our Lord, Jesus. So later in the Psalm, we learn the Messiah will be a priest forever. God has sworn, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 uses Melchizedek as an illustration of an ideal priest king and then points forward to another Melchizedek who would come from David's lineage. So, if you love a good mystery story, you're going to love Melchizedek. You can spend a long time contemplating and figuring out who in the world is this character in the Bible called Melchizedek. He appears once in the Bible, then he's used as an illustration throughout. So the author of Hebrews will bring up Melchizedek again several times. So this isn't, this isn't the only time we're going to be talking about Melchizedek. He's going to bring him up again. But for now, let's just get an introduction to this mysterious Melchizedek. He appears in Genesis chapter 14. And the context here is Abraham had just finished rescuing his neighbor Lot from a coalition of kings who had defeated Sodom and Gomorrah in a battle. So after returning from the fight, Abraham met with the king of Sodom in the so-called King's Valley. And with the king of Sodom was one called, this is how the Bible describes him, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High. Melchizedek bring, brings out bread and wine and he blesses Abraham. He tells him in Genesis 14 and 19. And he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And, Abraham, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. That's all you hear about Melchizedek. Just this one brief interaction with Abraham. A couple things to note about Melchizedek. Number one, we're told he's the king of Salem, which some scholars have uh, uh, deduced is Jerusalem. He's also called the priest of God Most High. Now, who's God Most High? It's Yahweh. And number three, we're told he blessed Abram by God Most High. So what's so mysterious about him is 
how is he a priest of God Most High if God had not established the priesthood yet? There was no Aaron, there was no Moses, there were no Levites yet. But here we have this king coming out with the king of Sodom to bless Abraham by God Most High. Who is this guy and what priesthood is this? What was his relationship with Abraham? I mean, there's so many questions um, that are unanswered, really. But what's most important for us to emphasize here is that Christ is a priest. We're told Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So whatever order Melchizedek was of, Christ is of that order as well. So that's significant. It means that Christ is like Melchizedek in that he's a priest and he's a king. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications to God, we're told, and he entreated God to save him from the, from the cross. But through the suffering of the cross, Christ learned obedience. And by being made perfect through his suffering, Christ became the source of salvation for all who believe. What does it mean? It means Christ was the perfect priest and the perfect king. And as a human man, he was obedient to the point of death, and he secured our salvation on the cross in his resurrection. So, I ask you, why did Melchizedek bring out bread and wine for Abraham? That's pretty specific. Bread and wine. What did that point forward to? Where else in the Bible do we see bread and wine from a priest king? It's the body and blood of Christ. The mysterious priest of God, Most High, came out to distribute the emblems of our salvation, bread and wine. And Jesus comes as a priest king, just like Melchizedek, and he offers us his body, the bread, and his blood, the wine, to save us forever. He is our high priest king who gives his own body and sheds his own blood to distribute eternal salvation to all who believe. Therefore, as a result of that, we now have the ability and the, and the privilege to confidently draw near to that throne of grace he sits upon and he will give us mercy in our time of need. Is, is anybody in a time of need? Anybody? Just Dave? A couple? Got one over here. Come on. Give me some more, give me some more, everybody. I'm not talking about even material need, although some of us are in material need and God is our provider, but is anybody in need of hope and salvation? Are you weak? This message is for those who are weak. This message is not for those who think they're okay. If you think you're okay, you're lying to yourself anyways. But this isn't for those who are healthy. This isn't for those who think they're just fine or for those who wrongly suppose, I'm not that bad. I'm not really a sinner, right? I mean, I'm not as bad as like the other guy. That's not, this message isn't for, for those who think that. This message is for those who, who are connected to reality and who know they're weak. So know this, if, if, if you're in need this morning, Christ is a sympathetic Savior. I don't know what you've been told about the Lord, but Christ is a sympathetic Savior. He understands all your weaknesses. He was tempted just like you are, and yet he's without sin. And as a sympathetic high priest, he's telling you, come to my throne of grace. Come boldly. 
You don't have to come to his throne with uncertainty. To understand who he is and what he's done is to realize how certain his promise is. And if you approach his throne with uncertainty, you're approaching his throne with unbelief and distrust. The only way to approach the throne of grace is with boldness, or else he wouldn't have wrote it, right? Boldness, understanding how certain his promise is. He will save you. He will do away with your sin. And notice how amazing this is, that he is a king, that he has a throne of grace, of grace, of unearned favor. There's nothing you can do to earn this grace, or else it wouldn't be grace. It would be wages. And the only wages we hear about in the Bible is that of sin and its death. <laughs> so you don't want wages. You want grace. I mean, you could go for the wages, but it's not going to end well. <laughs> do not go to his throne of grace in your own confidence. This isn't your own confidence. Let me make that clear. The confidence you approach his throne with is the confidence of understanding and knowing who he is and what he's done. It's not your own confidence that you stand before him with. It's with the confidence of the Lord. He's our high priest king who actually sympathizes with our weakness and who saves us to the utmost. Jesus doesn't halfway save you. He does, it's not an 80% and then you figure out the 20. It's not 99.9, .9, you figure out the 0.1. If there was a 0.1% chance that I could lose my salvation or be lost, I'd be lost. <laughs> I'd figure, I'd find the 0.1 and grasp it. But it's 100%, 110%. He does it to the utmost. That's what it means. He saves to the utmost. It means there's not a single drop of of your own merit that goes into this. Not a single drop. If it was, it would taint the whole thing. <laughs> it's all Christ. His blood was shed and his blood is sufficient. As the priest, he offers himself as the sacrifice. As the king, he says, now you can come because I've dealt with that which separates you from God and you can come boldly with uncertainty, with, not uncertainty, with certainty that I will save and forgive you. So do that this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your tremendous grace. Um, thank you for sending your son to be our priest, to not just mediate with us, between us and you, but to also be the sacrifice. Thank you that he's the king of kings who overcame death who rose from the dead, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, so that we could confidently now draw near to your throne, so that we don't have to be like the high priest from, from, from ancient times who would have to enter with fear and trembling and, and ensure he did exactly uh, what you know was required, but that we can enter with confidence and boldness that you've done it all for us. Thank you, Lord, for that grace. Thank you for your throne of grace for being our king and our priest and, and sympathizing with us in our weaknesses. We thank you, we honor, and we love you, and we just ask for your mercy in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.